0: Freedom doesn't need more cheerleaders shouting partisan slogans. It needs thoughtful, principled disciples of liberty. Deep down, we all know that freedom and liberty matter. This is where we discuss why they matter. It's time to elevate the discussion. Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome to Loving Liberty. So yeah, I had a couple of days off. And I'm I'm grateful. Look, technology makes it possible to do uh, best of shows. And and I'm quite happy with uh, with, uh, you know, the the reruns that I was able to uh, to play in my absence. But, you know, I have a lot to say. (laughs) What can I say? Get me away from the microphone. And I'm feeling like, ah, so much going on. And I want to say something. But uh, I I spent the weekend hanging with about uh, roughly 800, 900 uh, very freedom minded individuals free market supporters at the uh, fee 2019 sponsored by the foundation for economic education. So we ended up in Atlanta. I'm going to give you just a little bit of a travel log here just because uh, look, I, I hope it doesn't come off as bragging because I am, I am so humbled to be able to rub shoulders with some of the people with whom I'm rubbing shoulders these days, but to the hotel that we stayed in. Oh my word. I don't think I've ever seen anything quite like it. It was the Marriott Marquis in downtown Atlanta. I believe that uh, some of this uh, hotel, uh, I think it was the interior, was used for scenes in the Hunger Games and I'm talking about scenes in Panem, you know, the capital, the decadent capital. And and I'm not saying that, you know, we were all we were all lighting cigars with $100 bills and eating caviar and laughing at the poor suckers who weren't hanging with us. No, it was it was actually, you know, just a lot of down-to-earth people, but I've never seen a hotel quite that incredible. The architecture. I mean, it's it's got to be 40 stories tall. The uh, the elevators are all right there central in the building, so you just have this incredible central atrium going up 40 stories it's it's just almost mind-blowing but uh, the setting was was secondary to the topics that were being discussed and i just I, i have to tell you if you feel discouraged sometimes if you feel like man you know this world is just falling apart and nobody cares and nobody will do anything about it there are people who are definitely doing what they can and and, and I, I love it when they approach it from a principled standpoint of what can we do? Let me let me put it another way. How can I act in a way that will have positive impact on the world? It's not enough just to say, I want to change the world for the better. This was one of the talks that was given there. I think it was T.K. Coleman who said, you know, it's, it's not enough just to, you know, I want to change the world for the better. You have to set your course in such a way that the actions you take, the way you live your life, the steps you make your feet take, move in a positive direction, and that's intimidating for some people. Because let's face it, most of us tend to underestimate our our abilities of uh, you know what we can do, or or we hide behind false humility of well I'm really not that good, or I don't know what to do. But uh, I, I'm here to tell you that there were people of all ages, lots of young folks, and that probably gave me the the greatest uh, sense of. Hope of all, not not all the the millennial generation are a bunch of snowflakes. This needs to be understood. And even if it's a minority that uh, is represented by the the kids, the the young people. Sorry, I'm talking like an old man. uh, The the millennials that I saw this this past weekend. It doesn't take more than a small minority of individuals of good character, sound understanding and, and principled action to make a, a very noticeable difference in the world. I think British anthropologist Margaret Mead would agree with me, right? It's always been the small groups of people who are dedicated, tireless, that have ended up affecting the greatest positive change. So I bring this up because I'm, I'm about to delve into a topic that I know with certainty is, is going to make some people's blood boil. And you just need to understand my goal here is not to make people angry, but my goal is to to hopefully bring a a deeper level of thought to the subject that I'm about to broach. You ready for this? Is it could it be more clear? Could it not be more clear that we are being steered into a war with Iran? And I hear the denials, you know, and I hear the well, you know, the U.S. has video evidence that shows this and the U.S. knows this. And the U.S. knows that. I'm sorry, but my own government has been the provocateur too many times. They have lied too many times. In fact, a friend sent me a, a, a nice email. <laughs> I've seen the meme since pop up on Facebook. How long before Iranian forces attack the USS Maine while it does peacetime patrols in the Gulf of Tonkin? Now, if you're past a certain age, you're going to understand all of those references. But that's some pretty solid evidence that in the past, yes, our government has lied to us for the purposes of getting us embroiled in some conflict. And by saying this, it it needs to I I feel foolish that it even needs to be said, but I got to make clear. I'm not trying to shill for Iran. I'm not trying to excuse any foreign power from acting in bad faith or or behaving in a threatening manner. But the word entanglement sticks in my mind as to, well, why are U.S. officials acting the way that they are? I know Caitlin Johnstone has been one of the, the voices of reason when it comes to, uh, you know, keeping, keeping tabs on the, the folks who are, are trying so hard to steer us into this conflict. She has seven reasons to be highly skeptical of the Gulf of Oman incident in which apparently two vessels were damaged um, and we're, you know, were told Iran is to blame. Iran is to blame. Here are a couple of the reasons, though. Number one, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo is a well-established liar. He has a history of circulating blatant lies about Iran and the behavior of the Iranian government. And it wasn't that long ago he told an audience at Texas A&M University when he was leading the CIA, quote, we lied, we cheated, we stole, we had entire training courses. It was great. His words. Number two. The U.S. Empire is known to use lies and false flags to start wars. They have an extensive, well-documented history of advancing pre-existing military agendas using lies, false flags, and psyops to make targeted governments appear to be the aggressors. This is such a well-established pattern that Gulf of Tonkin briefly uh, trended on Twitter after the Gulf of Oman incident. Hey, people are starting to connect the dots. Any number of government agencies could have been involved from any of the nations in this alliance, including the U.S., the U.K., the KSA, the UAE, or... Israel. Number three, John Bolton, security advisor to the president has openly endorsed lying to advance military agendas. Now, I don't know if president Trump is, you know, behind this or if he's just going along, but I'm, you know, that mustachioed, uh, security expert, John Bolton was one of the driving forces behind the Iraq war. Which was built on lies and misrepresentations and things stated as fact which were not known to be fact. The Onion actually was spoofing the idea that Bolton might involve himself in staging yet another Middle Eastern war based on lies. That's how predictable this has become. Back in December of 2010, on an episode of Fox News' Freedom Watch, John Bolton and Judge Andrew Napolitano were debating about the recent WikiLeaks publications. Naturally, the subject of government secrecy came up. This is what Bolton said, quote, Now I want to make the case for secrecy in government when it comes to the conduct of national security affairs and possibly for deception, where that's appropriate. You know, Winston Churchill said during World War II that in wartime, truth is so important, it should be surrounded by a bodyguard of lies. To which Judge Napolitano incredulously asked, do you really believe that? Absolutely, Bolton replied. Would you lie in order to preserve the truth? If I had to say something I knew was false to protect American national security, I would do it, Bolton answered. Now, this is the same John Bolton who's been paid exorbitant speaking fees by the pro-regime change M.E.K. terror cult, promising them in a 2017 speech that they'd all be celebrating regime change in Tehran before 2019. The same John Bolton who once threatened to murder an OPCW official's children if he didn't stop getting in the way of his Iraq war agenda. I mean, come on, there's there's power and then there is hubris. I think what we see in, in Washington, D.C. today is a surplus of hubris. The thing that's most puzzling to me and perhaps the most troubling, and I, I would love to get your thoughts on this. 801 331 why do so many Americans feel duty-bound to go along with it? It's as if they feel there's a, there's a patriotic duty to, to, to shut up and fall in line, wave the flag a little harder, cheer a little bit louder. Why? Why are we so eager to believe what our government tells us or what some within our government are telling us about these uh, purported enemies? I got a few more reasons here I'm going to share with you when we come back, but I would love to get your take on it. 801 331 8113. This is Loving Liberty. back to loving liberty okay i'm i'm a little bit on one today and it's it's mainly out of concern that i i am greatly concerned we are being misdirected deceived okay i'll just say it lied into an unnecessary war with iran and and i'm, I'm going to share with you uh, i i may uh, yeah i think i'll do it sooner than later i'm going to share with you uh, a commentary from fred reed fred is an expatriate uh, uh, american who has since moved to mexico he's a Journalist, he's a marine, he's a guy who he served in Vietnam curmudgeonly. (laughs) He writes about what he sees and he and he spares no uh no he doesn't pull his punches. He's very, very blunt. But I also think he, he is willing to speak painful truths that that others are not. Even I Quail at the idea of of spelling it out as clearly as as Fred does. So I'll share some thoughts from him on uh, the view from abroad, America as others see it, and maybe then you can understand a little more the skepticism that I'm feeling grow as to uh, when our government keeps telling us, "Well, you know, we have to do something. Why we're going to have to we're going to have to do something to contain Iran." When it, when it appears to me that it's our government, among others, that that is being the provocateur that, that's escalating things much the way they did in the Iraq war. I guess the next thing to watch for is a big buildup of military forces in response to the threat which our government is creating. All right. Back to Caitlin Johnstone's article about uh, some of the the seven reasons you should not believe or the seven reasons to be highly skeptical of the Gulf of Oman incident in which uh, we were told that a couple of oil tankers or actually I guess they weren't carrying oil. They were carrying petroleum products other than oil. But um, they were they were apparently attacked and set on fire. And, uh, you know, it's 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 raising a lot of red flags for a lot of people. So let's talk about false flags. She says using false flags to start a war with Iran is already an established idea in the D.C. Swamp. Back in 2012, at a forum for the Washington Institute of Near East Policy think tank, the group's director of research, Patrick Clausen, openly talked about the possibility of using a false flag to provoke a war with Iran, citing the various ways the U.S. has done that, exactly that, with its previous wars. Clausen says, I think that crisis initiation is really tough, and it's very hard for me to see how the United States president can get us to war with Iran, which leads me to conclude that if, in fact, compromise is not coming, that the traditional way that America gets to war is what would be best for U.S. interests. Some people think that Mr. Roosevelt wanted to get us into the war. You recall we had to wait for Pearl Harbor. Some people think that Mr. Wilson wanted to get us into World War I. You may recall we had to wait for the Lusitania episode. Some people may think Mr. Johnson wanted to get us into Vietnam. You may recall we had to wait for the Gulf of Tonkin episode. We didn't go to war with with Spain until the USS Maine exploded. And may I point out that Mr. Lincoln did not feel that he could call out the army until Fort Sumter was attacked, which is why he ordered the commander at Fort Sumter to do exactly that thing which the South Carolinians said would cause an attack. So if in fact the Iranians aren't going to compromise, it would be best if somebody else started the war, Clausen continued. One can combine other means of pressure with sanctions. I mean, the explosion on August 17th. Keep in mind, this is a few years ago. We could step up the pressure. I mean, look, people, Iranian submarines periodically go down. Someday, one of them might not come up. Who would know why? We can do a variety of things if we wish to increase the pressure. I'm not advocating that, but I'm just suggesting that this is not an either or proposition. Just sanctions have to exceed to succeed, rather, or other things. We are in the game of using covert means against the Iranians. We could get nastier at that. Now, look, I realize that's one guy talking. But what he's talking about demonstrates that there is a history of people within the U.S. government looking for and finally finding some kind of confrontation when they feel it fits their, their purposes. I'm still trying to understand how how the, the good, the patriotic can, can see what our government is doing right now in the Persian Gulf and not get a sense that, wait, doesn't it seem like we're the ones thumping our finger into Iran's chest and daring them to do something about it? If you've never lived under sanctions, and I haven't, maybe it's a little bit tough to, to sympathize with uh, what it's like to see people go in need or, or starve or die. 500,000 in Iraq under the sanctions that were imposed by the U.S. government, among others. To which then Secretary of State Madeleine Albright said, I'm sorry, I believe she was a U.N. ambassador uh, at the time, um, she talked about uh, how it was worth it. We felt it was worth it to try to get the Iranians to throw off Saddam Hussein. There's nasty, dirty stuff being done in the dark. But you and I are not supposed to see these things. This is, this is the deal with the devil that Jacob Hornberger described that came about after World War II. The national security apparatus that was put in place... Promise to keep us safe, but also promise now what we have to do, you probably don't want to know. There's some wet work involved here, and so we need to keep it in the dark. You'll sleep better at night if you don't know what we're doing. Well, I'm going to say for the record, I love my country enough that if my country is engaged, if my government is engaged in things that are illegal, immoral, or unethical, I can't support that. I would never ask you to support that. Let's go on to to, uh, reason number five to be skeptical. The U.S. State Department has already been running PSYOPs to manipulate the public Iran narrative. State Department officials admitted to congressional staff at a closed-door meeting. um, This would have been last Monday. That a $1.5 million troll farm had gone beyond the scope of its mandate by aggressively smearing American critics of the Trump administration's Iran policy as propagandists for the Iranian government. That's according to a new report from The Independent. That mandate had reportedly consisted of countering propaganda from Iran, also known as conducting anti-Iran propaganda. Critics in Washington have gone further, saying the program resembled the type of troll farms used by autocratic regimes abroad. That, according to The Independent, one woman behind the harassment campaign, a longtime Iranian-American activist, has received hundreds of thousands of dollars from the State Department over the the years to promote freedom of expression and free access to information. Here's reason number six to doubt the Gulf of Oman narrative, and that is that it makes no sense. Kim.com said, here we go again. U.S. Empire creating a pretext to go to war with Iran. If it makes no sense that Iran, it makes no sense, rather, that Iran would provoke a war with the, the U.S. Empire while Iran tries to savage, salvage rather, the nuclear deal with Europe. This situation looks manufactured as hell. The pro-war U.S. media can't wait to sell this. Now, one of the ships that was damaged in the attacks was the Japanese-owned or was Japanese-owned, the other was bound for Japan. This happened just as Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe was in Tehran, attempting to negotiate a de-escalation between the U.S. and Iran with Trump's blessing, after Iran had just released a prisoner accused of conducting espionage for the U.S. in what many took to be a gesture of good faith. Now, Caitlin Johnstone says Iran's been conducting itself with remarkable restraint in the face of relentless sanctions and provocations from the U.S. and its allies. It wouldn't make much sense for it to suddenly abandon that restraint with attacks on sea vessels, then rescue their crew, then deny perpetrating the attacks. During a time of diplomatic exchanges and while trying to preserve the nuclear deal with Europe. If Tehran did perpetrate the attacks in order to send a strong message to the Americans, it would have been a very mixed message sent in a very weird way. And number seven, even if Iran did perpetrate the attack, Pompeo would still be lying. His statement uses words like unprovoked twice or Iran's provocative acts once, explicitly claiming the U.S. was just minding its own business, leaving Iran alone when it was attacked out of the blue by a violent aggressor. Well, Sometimes the things put out by the U.S. State Department feel like they're conducting experience experiments on us just to test the limits of our stupidity. How bad can we write this or how how far can we push it? And they'll still buy it and eat it up with both hands. All right, when we come back, I'm going to raise some blood pressure. Stay with me. Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion. Without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. This is the Loving Liberty Broadcast. I'm Brian Hyde. Hey, whether you're listening to us live or you're catching the podcast, thanks so much for being a part of my audience. And if you want to join the conversation, now you can only do this during the live broadcast, obviously, but you can call in at 801-331-8113 if you are so inclined. I, I have to offer this disclaimer at the, at the beginning of this segment here because I, I'm going to push some buttons. I'm, I'm going to share some thoughts with you from Fred Reed. The view from abroad, America as others see it and I'm I'm going to tell you it, I don't know that I'm marching in lockstep with Fred but I think he is calling some things correctly here but I have to warn you there are some hard truths and he's going to say some things that uh, that will definitely rub some people the wrong way but I believe that they are truths I I think that there is there's there's no malice in his uh, recounting of, of what he says and what he sees I believe it's actually being offered as a friend to those who are willing to listen. But I also can predict some people are going to want to protect their mental universe from the contradictions that are sure to crop up when they hear this. So consider yourself warned if, uh, if you need to. Now might be a good time to wrap yourself in a flag, put a cool towel on your forehead, and, and you, can, you can switch me off if you need to. He says, Americans are brought up to believe that the United States is a shining city on a hill, a light to mankind. that The world envies for our values and freedoms and hates us because we have them. And he says, this is ground into us from birth. Those of us now long in the tooth remember the 50s when Superman jumped out of a window while the announcer spoke of a strange visitor for another planet fighting for truth, justice and the American way, which then were thought to be related. He says as one who has traveled much and lived in several countries I can tell you it ain't so. The world does not regard America with admiration. Now I'm going to give a quick aside here just so so we're clear before we dive in and 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 he really, you know, goes to work here. There is much about this country that is good. I happened to sit next to a young German couple on my flight home uh, from Atlanta over the weekend. Wonderful people. They were excited to be in America, excited to see the beauty of this land, excited to experience some of the things here. And I'm grateful for that, for the wonder that they bring and, and the desire to come and see great things here. So this is not uh, in any way the, the suggestion that everything in America is wrong and must go, but there are some glaring inconsistencies for a nation that prides itself on being a city on a hill. There are some things that are inconsistent with our national character and with our behavior that will destroy us if they go unchecked. If they're allowed to continue on, we will look around one day as the people of the Roman Empire once did. and Hey, what the heck happened? How did we fall apart like this? Because we are following a similar path of decline. So what I'm going to share with you, I'm sharing in love but also with just a bit of sorrow that it has to be said. Fred Reed says, Today the internet profoundly, profoundly affects the world's view of America. The web makes graphic and easily found things that in earlier times would have been out of sight from abroad. For example, people in Kathmandu and Moscow can see horrifying and entirely truthful Photos of the homeless living in piles of garbage in Los Angeles, San Francisco, Seattle, Portland, and dozens of other American cities. They can read of trade conventions avoiding San Francisco because of needles and excrement on the sidewalks. Such scenes are rare even in, the, in most upper third world countries. To the orderly Japanese accustomed to spotless cities and responsible government, such things are in the strict sense of the word incomprehensible. Home of the brave, land of the free, envy of the world. Just ask us. The estimated homeless population of L.A. is 58,000 and climbing. Swarms of flea-carrying rats, which certainly exist, are said to cause outbreaks of typhus, a medieval disease. Anyone with a smartphone can see this. The frequent mass shootings in the United States astonish most of the world. Opening fire on a country music concert, randomly shooting to death people in a gay nightclub, seems to most of the world a breakdown of civilization. It is. Many of these montazas involve children gunning down their classmates. Even in a country like Mexico, accustomed to recurring slaughters of narcos by other narcos, the school shootings are a shock. Americans are now used to things that in any other country would be Unthinkable. Bulletproof backpacks for high school students, police walking the halls, metal detectors, proposals to armed teachers, active shooter drills. To the rest of the world or to Americans who were in high school in the 60s, this is insane. But it's normal in the indispensable country. The now predictable annual harvest of 700,000 successful homicides in Chicago, the 300 in Baltimore, plus thousands of wounded, seem to outsiders like something out of Blade Runner. Much of the civilized world looks with wonder on an America overflowing with guns and using them on each other. Only in America. Interestingly, the most heavily armed countries in the world, Israel and Switzerland, have virtually no gun crime. This is the country Americans believe the world wants to imitate. No. From the outside, it seems more like a country in political and cultural freefall. He says to everyone else, the militarization of the United States, its absurd military expenditures, its huge numbers of nuclear weapons, its desire to upgrade them, to develop small tactical nuclear weapons, its preparation for nuclear war with specialized flying bunkers seems nutty. No other country does this. None wants to. In Mexico, people roll their eyes. What the hell is wrong with the gringos? Affectionately known as the Doomsday Plane, the Boeing 747, the modified Boeing 747, which he has pictured in his article, is used to transport the Secretary of Defense and is born and bred for battle. It stands nearly six stories tall, equipped with four colossal engines, and is capable of enduring the immediate aftermath of a nuclear detonation. The language is that of a little boy of of 12 watching Star Wars, but it is the attitude of much of America. Easily found online, the racial disaster in the U.S., dozens of cities with domestic Sowitos in their hearts, the huge, hopeless, entirely black regions where whites dare not walk. In these, entirely black schools turn out millions of barely literates who for the remaining 50 years of their lives will be unemployable. And this is all online with photos and statistics. Man just out of jail, arrested in rape of woman, age 78. Another face of rape, another face of race, rather, in America. These stories, common as potatoes, a similar gentleman just threw a white child of five from three stories up, are suppressed to the extent possible by the American media, but often show up in British dailies. Such things almost never happened in Europe before the arrival of African and Muslim immigrants. The whole world can see. Freedoms: More sophisticated readers abroad know of our intensifying censorship, the words that can get you fired. The controlled press, the surveillance. Americans know what you can't say and who you can't say it about. We know the police are militarized and out of control. By the way, look at the the video out of a parking lot in Phoenix near a dollar store. Guns in the face, F-bombs, threats to put a bullet through people's heads over an alleged theft of a dollar store doll by a four-year-old child. It's it's as ugly as it gets. Fred Reed says, We see the cell cam videos of the beatings. So does the world. Americans' foreign policy makes it hated in most of the world. It seems a murderous, thuggish, brutal, a menace to everyone. For example, the U.S. killed over a million people in Iraq. This doesn't bother Americans. Since 2000, it has destroyed Iraq, Syria, Libya, entered its 18th year of butchering Afghans, bombed Somalia, Sends troops to Africa, it militarily threatens North Korea, Venezuela, Iran, seeks to destroy the economies of Iran, Venezuela, Cuba, Russia, China. It sanctions Europe. No other country does this. Now, he says, this is not the griping of Fred. It is what the world sees daily in detail. Number of wars started since 2000 by Russia or Iran. Zero. Zero. China, zero. North Korea, zero. America, hmm, question mark. Number of countries openly running torture sites while talking of human rights, one. The country with the largest prison population, the answer is left to the reader as an exercise. He says even today, Americans speak of American values, of the country's devotion to democracy and human rights and freedom. And maybe Americans believe it, but no one else does. The United States has a horrendous history of installing or supporting hideous dictators, supporting repressive regimes, overthrowing elected governments, human rights in Saudi Arabia, Israel. Come on, the world is not blind. Americans self-absorbed, perhaps the most historically ignorant of first world peoples, shrug such things off. I'll get over it, whatever it was. The nations involved do not shrug them off. You can bet the Chinese know about uh, legation days. America's role in forcing the opium trade on China, extraterritorially. He says from abroad, America is a feral, amoral, remorseless empire rotting from within, willing to do anything to maintain its dominance. From inside the U.S., it seems otherwise. Do you, an American reader, want to kill Afghans? Buy another trillion dollars of nuclear weapons? Go to war with Iran or Russia? But Americans have no influence over what Washington does. And the world judges by what it sees Welcome back to Loving Liberty I'm Brian Hyde okay, I'm going to include a link to the uh, Fred Reed article in the show notes I really hope that you'll uh, take the time to check it out I am I am a little discouraged when I when I think about uh, some of the the wholesale deception that I, I perceive at play in steering our country into yet another what I believe is needless and unjust war. And yet, uh, you know, the the last point that that Fred Reed makes in his article is Americans have no influence over what Washington does. That's a scary thing. I mean, it's 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 a reality I don't want to acknowledge because I want to believe, you know, like we were taught. Well, no, we are the government. Uh, The government is responsive to us. I think most of us know better, though. Now, that doesn't mean that all is lost, but it does mean that uh, there are other areas in which our efforts are probably more appropriately applied or at least more productively applied. As hard as it may seem, you know, when you, but Brian, we're looking at the prospect of maybe, you know, maybe we are headed for some kind of a collision, not just with Iran, but what if Russia steps up on their side or, or China or something like that? What if we end up in some kind of a nuclear showdown? Okay. Now that's, you know, definitely worst case scenario. I don't have any control over that. Okay. I don't have the launch codes. Neither do you, (laughs) but I do have control over something that is far more important And that is, what kind of individual am I going to be? How will I conduct myself in my life? And this has a lot more impact than you may think. No, you and I individually may not be able to head off uh, the apparent coming collision in the Persian Gulf. But that doesn't mean that we can't use whatever influence we do have as wisely as possible to lift and to better the world around us. I don't know how to describe it other than, you know, you've got to, you've got to learn to open your eyes and see the opportunities you have to, to bless somebody's life. It could be something simple. It could be helping a neighbor carry a piece of furniture when you see him struggling with it. It could be, you know, just a note or a phone call to a friend who, you know, is going through a tough time. It could be starting a new business. so much of it can be outside of politics. I guess that's, that's what I'm getting at. And if you feel like, well, those efforts are wasted if, you know, if, if we somehow get into some kind of shooting war with Iran or Iraq or, I'm sorry, we've already done that one, with Russia or with China. I don't think any of those things are wasted, but, but this, is, this is my perspective. There are some things that are not in our control, but I do have supreme confidence regarding who is ultimately in control or in charge. Okay, I'm going to get a little philosophical and maybe a little metaphysical here for a moment. Bear with me on this. I believe God is absolutely in charge of this universe. And that doesn't mean that uh, he micromanages every tiny detail of our lives and everything, you know, that goes on in this world. Um, I believe one of the greatest gifts that we have from our creator is that uh, that freedom to, to choose, to make our own choices, to act as agents for ourselves. And that he allows us to do that. And sometimes we do it with wisdom and sometimes the, the outcome is very good. And sometimes we do it with foolishness. And we go against the, the basic guidelines of right and wrong. And it can have disastrous results. But in the end, I'm convinced that the person who is making the effort to be a decent person, whether they believe in God or not. But if you are striving to live your life with honesty, with integrity, with character in everything that you're doing. You will have a positive effect on the world around you, an undeniable effect. In fact, if I can be so bold, it'll be part of whatever legacy you leave behind And you may actually carry part of that legacy with you, assuming that there is a a next life. But no matter what is going on around us, and no matter how ugly or evil others may be behaving, the world needs people who are carriers of light. And I'm trying to say this in in, uh, a sense that, that doesn't make people who aren't of a particular religious bent, you know, make them, I don't want to make you feel excluded. Even if you have no particular faith, you can still be a bearer of light. And the world needs it. And it's not a matter of we have to turn everybody into, you know, thinking exactly the same way that we do. Nope. We just need people who are willing to, by example, by their actions... Live in such a way that others can see, prove positive with their own eyes, that there is something brighter, there is something more positive to which they too can aspire. Think about the times in your life when you have made a conscious decision to stretch, to strive to actually work at being the best version of yourself that you could be. And I'm, I'm talking about in a sense of, you know, your character. To live up to the goodness that, uh, that maybe you were even surprised to know was inside of you. I would wager that more times than not, what inspired you to make that effort is you encountered somebody whose behavior or whose example showed you that it can be done. And not only can it be done, but in some way, it brightened your world or your understanding or lightened your heart in such a way that you went, this, this is real. This works. And it made you want to be better as a result. They didn't, they didn't berate you or otherwise, you know, shout you into it or shame you into being a better person. They showed you by their actions and maybe by how they treated you, that you are a better person. And you wanted to rise to that level of expectation. I apologize for getting so, uh, so philosophical here, but I guess what I'm trying to get at is don't overlook the little things. Yes, we can see that on a macro level, humanity is, uh, is in a very clear state of crisis. Very consistent, by the way, the way with the whole fourth turning uh, cycles of history. I still recommend, get the book, The Fourth Turning by Strauss and Howe. It will change the way you look at history. But as that fourth turning crisis builds, and we are in the middle of a very building crisis, right? And we've been in crisis for some time, but it is building to its crescendo. And I'm guessing sometime within the next five to 10 years, it will come to a head as other fourth turning crises have before. What will make the biggest difference on the outcome, whether it is an outcome for the, for the better like the American Revolution was or maybe an outcome for the worse, like, say, the Bolshevik Revolution was for the people in Russia is going to be determined by the character of people like you and me and how we choose to conduct ourselves. So this is not a call that you should be in Sunday school. Next Sunday, I want to see you there. 10 o'clock, you need to be there but rather a chance to just evaluate. What can I do? What would I want to do? Or even better, what is my mission? I just had a chance this weekend to hang out with a lot of people who feel very keenly that sense of personal mission and and the corresponding responsibility that comes with it to, to make something of themselves. It's tremendously exciting. And everybody has a little bit different role to play. It's not not everybody has to do the exact same thing, which to me is the beauty of it. You have skills and talents that I don't. You have passions that make your life, you know, that make you come alive. That's a phrase I heard quite a bit this weekend. Not so much, you know, what is it to... What should I do? What is my unique purpose? But what is it that makes me come alive? I really believe every single one of us has something that sparks that sensation within us. And it's a happy day when you figure out what that is and realize this is something I can do. And this is something I want to do with my life. The beauty of it is I can't tell you what yours is. I can't tell you what your what your purpose may be. But I can tell you with 100% confidence, you have one. And it's on you to figure out what it is and then how you want to pursue it. Well, that's all the time we're going to have for today. But uh, hopefully I've given you something to think about. Try not to be too angry with me for the uh, Fred Reed commentary. But I think it's some stuff definitely worth considering. We see ourselves in a very different way than the world sometimes sees us. Let's take that for what it's worth and do what we can to change things for the better. This is Loving Liberty. Stand by. Beth Ann is next. Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network.